Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome two special guests, Drs. Lodi Mulder and Jeff Myers. Dr. Mulder completed her undergraduate studies in the Netherlands at Utrecht University, after which she earned a master's degree in education from Harvard University, and then a PhD in organizational leadership from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She is currently the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at the American Society for Clinical Pathology. She is widely published and speaks at a variety of events, nation and worldwide. Dr. Myers completed his undergraduate studies at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, and medical school both at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and the University of North Dakota. He completed residency training at Washington University and a fellowship in surgical pathology and pulmonary pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He is currently the James French Professor of Diagnostic Pathology at the University of Michigan, where he also serves as the Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs and Quality at the University of Michigan Medical School. He is also widely published and edits texts and also speaks at a plethora of events. I have asked my guests here today in part to discuss their recent article from the American Journal of Clinical Pathology titled, Frontline Workers in the Back Rooms of COVID-19, Caring for the Living and the Dead. Welcome to my esteemed guests. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you both doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us here today. Yeah. So I'd like to know more about each of you. Could you tell me about yourself, aside from the professional biographical outline I made above and how you came to work where you do? Dr. Mulder, I'll start with you. Yeah, so I am originally from the Netherlands, um, and I've been studying leadership in multiple countries all around the world, including India, Tanzania, Uganda, Indonesia, Guatemala, wherever they took me. Um, and I've been based in the U.S. for about the last 13 years, and then the last five I've been with AACP. Um, at ACP, I started working on organizational leadership to create the ACP Leadership Institute, which is an online certificate program of about 18 courses focused on increasing leadership skills for medical professionals. And then I also direct the ACP Patient Champions Program. Um, and this is where I work together a lot with Dr. Myers. Patient Champions is a patient advocacy and education program that centers around um, empowering patients through creating an understanding of the laboratory's critical role um, in high patient, uh, high quality patient care and we do this in a multiple, uh, through multiple ways, uh, mainly through providing educational resources about laboratory testing involved in specific diagnoses, and then sharing real-life patient stories about how the lab saved their lives. Um, and as a patient-centric organization, this work is, of course, crucial for AACP's advocacy and education efforts. And these videos are also uh, help to recruit those interested in medicine into our profession and as I said, this is really where the majority of my collaborations with Dr. Myers um, fall. That's great. And just for the listeners, we have agreed amongst the three of us to go by first names from now on, which I messed up a little bit with Lodi, but now we'll go to you, Jeff, for your portion. Thank you, Natalie. Mm -hmm. uh, I came to Michigan in January 2006 after 16 great years at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, my years at Mayo were among the very best times in my life, both personally and professionally. And it really uh, was a marvelous launch pad for my interest in quality in general and, and patient-centered care in particular, which as Loti has said, is really kind of our connection point. 
Um, I came to Michigan really to um, understand medicine and pathology from a different place uh, with access to resources and people talent unique to a research intensive public university. And, and like my years at Mayo, it, um, it is a great ride. And I have been the beneficiary uh, of a lot of opportunities to learn, none more so than um, our evolution uh, as a patient and family-centered care department. Um, so that's how I come to this conversation today. I, I also moved to Michigan in part, to be honest, because I always wanted to experience life in a college town, and, and I'm sold. Oh, great. Yeah. I, after living in Chapel Hill for a time, I, I understand. Yeah, I'm with you. So the article that I mentioned above by uh, the two of you is a great read and I think a success story about bringing together multiple organizations in Michigan to serve the needs of the public during a particularly difficult time for the nation and the field of medicine. I'd like to talk more about the approach described in this field to or in this article to forensic medicine. But first, I'd like to rewind to the beginning of 2020. Could you each tell me about the early stages of the pandemic and when you realized we were in for a hard time? Um, Jeff, this time we can start with you. You know, it's it's really amazing to me to reflect on what a short period of time this has been, because I suppose, like many of us, it feels to me like we've been living with COVID forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, the first enterprise-wide email concerning COVID-19 came to me on March 3rd. I remember there was an attachment that we were asked to print and share in our work areas. It was a PDF file that had the, the header COVID-19 update. Um, I was looking back at it, and it, it talked about 92,000 cases worldwide and more than 100 cases in the U.S. Oh, wow. At that time with no <laughs> cases yet in Michigan. And, and well, even that with, you knew of, right? I mean, there probably were right, cases right, in Michigan, right? Undoubtedly. Exactly. Yes. And I remember that, that those numbers seem scary at the time. They, they uh-huh. seem hard to imagine now. Uh, I I remember this this uh, flyer talked about CDC travel notices, and that was a time at which many of our faculty were in Los Angeles for the annual meeting of the USCAP. Mm -hmm. And they told us that this email would become a weekly communication from our infection prevention and epidemiology group. And that all seemed pretty ominous to me. Mm -hmm. It was just one week later uh, that the first case of COVID-19 was reported in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And the very next day, our university president sent an email canceling all classes on Thursday and Friday. Oh, wow. And he announced that there would be no in-person classes for the remainder of the semester, saying that effective the following Monday, all classes would be delivered remotely. Mm-hmm. On that same Friday, uh, which was Friday the 13th, as luck would have it, oh, geez. Um, yeah. our department um, had our first meeting of our COVID preparedness, response, and recovery team. And it was really clear to me then uh, that the world had changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Lodi, how about you? Yeah, it's funny. As you, as I'm, as I'm listening to to both of you talk, it, it, the beginning of 2020 does seem so incredibly long ago. I think it, it, the year started mm-hmm. with those um, Australian bushfires, and it seems like it wasn't even this year. So it's just crazy to think right. how it just happened in the mm-hmm. last six, seven months. Um. Really thinking back on the beginning, I mean, I think, you know, as a, as I'm sure it's similar for both of you, we're a health organization. So we're always thinking about the health and safety of, of, you know, our members, staff, everybody working in the lab. So similar to, um, to Dr. Myers, we started discussing these issues very early, very early on. Um, and mm-hmm. we're working to develop those testing strategies right from the beginning. 
but also because as the director of leadership and empowerment, I'm housed in our in our HR department. So I was also involved in developing those strategies for our staff. Um, and we ended up transitioning to a remote work environment in early March before it was encouraged by a local authority. So it sounds like we're mm-hmm. very on par with the University of Michigan's approach. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's I, I think I personally, because I'm from Europe, um, I knew that we were in for a hard time when I saw on the news uh, that the U.S. decided that Europeans were banned from traveling to the States. Um, and yeah. with my whole family still being there, um, and we had plans, I mean, I had plans to go there, they had plans to come and see me. Um, those implications mm-hmm. just really hit home for me. And it just made mm-hmm. it... Um, you know, again, this was very early on in the pandemic still, but I think that yeah. it just made it, it made it so much more real for me. And I think overall, right, the right. pandemic has just gone beyond anyone's expectations and predictions of what could have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, here we are in July right. and it's, you know, the numbers and just hearing the numbers um, that Jeff mentioned from the first email that he received compared to the numbers mm-hmm. that we're hearing now. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it it's seems a like it's from a different there. planet. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the numbers now seem, it seems almost like there was a, a dip in the numbers as the effect of the lockdown sort of took place. And now the, they're surging again. It does feel almost like deja vu, but not quite. And I can imagine being from Europe that it would feel very different because, you know, the situation in Spain and Italy was ahead of where we were. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, so transition, transitioning back to your article, um, like you all say, forensic medicine is not at all what folks picture on television. My limited experience um, with forensic medicine, not only rotating as a resident, but also I did some moonlighting at the office of the chief medical examiner as a resident when I was in North Carolina. I can say that the work is both physically and emotionally difficult. Um, And in our current time, like we've been talking about, this is a unique situation for medicine. Um, sick patients are dying in the hospital alone. Sometimes they're dying at home alone because they're too scared to go to the hospital. And I think a lot more focus has shifted to the postmortem setting. Um, Jeff, can you tell us about the collaborative organization described in this article, um, which came to be before the COVID crisis and how that how that came to be? Um, sure. Uh, when I arrived in Michigan, I had heard on my interview trips that we had a highly functioning autopsy service, but I had never met the autopsy service director, a guy named Dan Remick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was kind of first on my list and um, uh, he kind of went over the data and indeed it was a very highly functioning service. And the conversation really evolved into a conversation about how we could kind of build on that foundation to uh, to um, elevate our hospital autopsy service to a fully functioning forensics program by developing collaborative relationships with additional counties uh, in Southeast Michigan. And our goal in that was to align our autopsy service with the subspecialty model that was evolving in the rest of anatomic pathology. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for us, Dan left soon thereafter to be chair at Boston University, but we proceeded with putting together a plan that began with a contract to provide services for Washtenaw County, which is the county in which Ann Arbor sits. Mm-hmm. Um, once that agreement was made uh, with strong support from our then chair, a guy named Jay Hess, who's now dean at Indiana University School of Medicine, we recruited Jeff Jensen from Milwaukee uh, and 
he quickly grew the program, uh, starting with renovation of our hospital morgue, in which our health system was willing to invest $1.3 million. Um, I remember the day that Jeff came into my office and said, what about Wayne County? And, you know, my response was, what about it? Um, and he said, well, I think they should be next. And uh, I thought he was nuts. Um, but he was... Um, <laughs> Why spot- did you think he was nuts for those Well, because it's huge, okay, right? Okay, and okay. Um, like I was trying to envision what it would mean for our autopsy service to basically go from... 500 autopsies a year to 3,000. Oh, okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we worked through that with Wayne County, and it was pretty clear from the beginning that this was brilliant, that we were aligned in many, many ways. Um, So eventually we signed a professional services agreement with Wayne County, which made all of their pathologists employees and fully credentialed members of Michigan Medicine with faculty appointments in our medical school. And that agreement has since been expanded to include all of the staff at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. So the county uh, owns the building, the facilities, but everybody in it uh, is part of our team. And it has had a profound impact on our ability to deliver high caliber forensic services. For all of the counties we serve, it's now four. It's also had a profound impact on our education program, our ability to Um, host a world-class forensic pathology fellowship. And I didn't know it at the time, but it really was important for positioning us to be successful in responding to the demands unique to a pandemic. Yeah, really. Who could have thought, huh? I guess it's just best to be ready for anything. That was never one of the arguments. (laughs) If it had been, then you would have been a fortune teller, I suppose, or a psychic. Um, And can you both, um, uh, Lottie and, or Lodi and Jeff, can you both talk about the Office of Decedent Affairs and the role of forensics and autopsy teams in interacting with decedents' families? I don't know, Jeff. I I can tell you about our model, and I think Loti can speak more effectively to kind of the principles, if Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Does that work for you, Loti? Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Um, so ha- having an Office of Decedent Affairs has been central to our autopsy and forensics program from the beginning. Uh, administratively, it's housed in our hospital department of social work, so it's not in the department. But we've also worked with our school of social work to pilot um, the impact of having social work resources in the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office in Detroit. And that is now also a permanent part of our program. Uh, Elizabeth Harcourt, who leads our Hospital Office of Decedent Affairs, is an active member of our Departmental Patient and Families Advisory Group, and she's extremely good at at working directly with families to understand their needs, which is needs, which is really, I think, the secret sauce that um, the Office of Decedent Affairs brings to the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's helped us see the importance of our work in in new ways. Uh, I think it was 2008, for example. She asked a mother whose daughter was lost to a motor vehicle accident to come to one of our regularly scheduled QA meetings in anatomic pathology. And and this mother um, courageously shared with our staff, trainees, and faculty the impact of her direct interactions with, with not only Office of Decedent Affairs staff, but, but also very specifically the pathologist who looked after her daughter. She described to us in really excruciating terms, the time that she spent with her daughter in our viewing facility, the importance of the support offered by Elizabeth and her team, and her reluctance to leave until the moment that 
a member of our forensics faculty assured her that she herself would remain with her daughter until she could be transported to the funeral home. And to see how that impacts um, how families experience death and, and after death was profound. Mm -hmm. um, in the course of the uh, pandemic, Elizabeth and her Office of Decedent Affairs partner, uh, someone named Amy Van Teen, uh, they stood up some of the communication tools that were very helpful in navigating the pandemic. They put together uh, one to two page handouts uh, that um, included key points from our post-mortem policies. Um, they prepared um, a situation background assessment recommendation, SBAR, if you will, formatted uh, best practices for end of life and after death to distribute to our providers through the command center. Our providers, of course, were dealing with um, uh, levels of mortality in the hospital that were well beyond anything they had done before. Uh, they partnered with our autopsy and forensic services to identify families for whom pictures of their loved ones might be an important service. And they created a bereavement outreach program um, that tapped into um, clinical social workers across the enterprise who volunteered to participate. A at Wayne County, having social workers has really affected um, our staff and faculty by alleviating them of some of the burden of responding to grieving families with um, kind of a different level of expertise. And this is extended to more effectively and compassionately partnering with families through the identification process. So, so Office of Decedent Affairs has been fundamental to this uh, multidisciplinary and cross-functional model of forensics care. Absolutely. And Lodi, would you like to speak to your part? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, especially, especially during this pandemic, but of course, with any death that is, um, with any death, the, the implications, the emotional implications and challenges are so vast. And understanding the, the cause of death and having those additional services, such as pictures being taken or someone staying with your loved ones until uh, the next phase, I mean, I think are so incredibly crucial to help uh, start that process of grief. I mean, we've heard, I'm sure we've all heard these stories about patients who, uh, or people who've had to say goodbye to family members, you know, through FaceTime or over the phone and, you know, because of all the COVID restrictions. So then having the services surrounding uh, their, their death, I think are absolutely crucial just to help people process that. We have one, uh, patient champion. Her name is Catherine. She's an oncology nurse in New York, and she ended up getting um, getting coronavirus, and so did both of her parents. And she ended up uh, losing both of her parents and said goodbye for, uh, to them through FaceTime. And it's just, I mean, an unimaginable situation. I mean, it's just, you know, beyond, even if I'm talking, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about yeah. what it would have been like for her. So then having this team that really goes above and beyond taking care um, of the deceased and really being their last, their advocate um, of both the deceased, but also for the family, I think um, is just such a beautiful uh, and important aspect that um, just deserves, um, deserves that recognition as well. I've heard of, of forensic pathologists who are sending handwritten notes to the family members of the deceased just to give them something, um, you know, as, as part of that, of that grieving and closure process that will probably take, 
you know, months, years. Um, like I said, this is just such an unprecedented situation that anything we can do to help people through these situations is just so incredibly um, wonderful and, and, and beautiful. And honestly, I think it's necessary. Yes, I, I agree. So I was particularly moved in the article that you all wrote about, and I know you both touched on this, the uh, descriptions of postmortem photography, which seems like it was in place before the COVID-19 crisis. But can you talk about either one of you, whoever feels more comfortable, um, can you talk about this service and how its role has changed or grown? Um, I'm happy to speak to how that's happened on our campus. Um, As you said, this program predates the pandemic, but but Mm -hmm. had great value in the context of families separated from their loved ones, as you and Loti um, described. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the pandemic, it became more prevalent as families were hungry for some sort of meaningful connection with those who were lost. It, it was typically offered in place of in-person viewings, and in that sense was especially important for right. families whose loved ones were cremated, um, Right. that, of course, precluding any sort of in-person after-death connection. Right. Um, Photographs um, here at the University Morgue were done by Lisa Neal, who is also a professional photographer, and at our Wayne County facility, they were done by Kelly Root, who's also a skilled photographer. And and most commonly, they were pictures of the decedent's hands. Mm -hmm. And as as you referenced, we illustrated this in our article, and, and they're incredibly moving, and they're also incredibly meaningful. We haven't been able to study that systematically, but but mm-hmm. there's plenty of anecdotal information from families about how important that was. Some preferred pictures of um, tattoos uh, mm-hmm. that had some special meaning and, and on request, um, they also took high resolution photographs of fingerprints and or hand or footprint impressions mm-hmm. for, for making mm-hmm. memorial jewelry. So th- this really turned out to be um, very important in this very unique time. Yeah, and it uh, it's reminiscent of um, the uh, loss and sort of memorial created around sort of perinatal loss to me that seems um, like they're sort of fitting with the fingerprints and the and and the jewelry and things like that. So that's really moving. I have one question that just came to mind when you all were both talking about this patient-centered care, and I know you all have published on that together. Pathologists, some pathologists at least, would not consider themselves great communicators, right? I think pathologists have a, a bad stereotype of being um, introverted and um, maybe choosing our field because we are not good communicators, which I would push against, but nonetheless, it's out there in the world. I'm sure both of you um, are familiar with that. So what do you do if a pathologist says to you, you know, I'm really not comfortable doing this level of, of family interaction, or do you find that having something like the Office of Decedent Affairs really bridges the gap between those who might not be comfortable with that, and they kind of can coach them or fill in the gaps? Um, you can maybe, Lodi, you can speak to that first. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, several years ago, the when the federal government passed a law that allowed patients to have direct access to their pathology reports electronically, I mean, that really shows that pathologists and laboratory professionals are really, you know, 
communicating more directly with patients mm -hmm. um, in the last few years. So one, I think I would say like you are, you already are, whether you're not, you do it I see. via, you know, on, uh, the, phone. on the phone or yeah. in person, like yeah. you already are communicating okay. with them. And I think now, uh -huh. nowadays, there are so many more resources available for patients to really learn more about pathology and laboratory medicine. And it's uh, it's it's importance in their care, but also really looking at like okay, so now I receive my uh, my lab report. What what do all these values mean? What are these reference ranges? And you know, really, I think mm -hmm. they're starting to take a lot more of an active approach. So I think that you know that that communication on the patient side is already there. Um, I think in terms of the the medical staff side, the laboratory, you know, I think. Um, and I know that Jeff can speak to this a lot more, um, but this is a this is such a crucial aspect of care, right? I mean, diagnostic medicine mm -hmm. is 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 integral in high quality patient care. So having um, having that access, I think, is very important. But I think it also um, for pathologists and laboratory professionals, to, if they want to get better at, at having that type of communication. Is it's really just going kind of back to the to to the basics of um, of a specific diagnosis. Um, we don't need to know. Mm -hmm. You know, these are these are typically we, we are assuming that patients do not have any medical do not have a medical background. So the more simplistic mm -hmm. you can describe things, I think the easier it is for people to process because. One receiving a serious, di a serious diagnosis is a lot to process in and of itself, let alone then getting really mm -hmm. the details of it. But I have absolutely mm -hmm. seen the power of those communications and um, you know providing that one that more thorough understanding. But then also, for instance, you know seeing your own pathology slide. And I've talked to some of our um, some of our patient champions. They have um, you know they, they've they've seen. They've seen their cancer and just that empowerment that we saw occurred in that moment where they almost kind of saw mm -hmm. the enemy of what they were fighting, I think is so incredibly mm -hmm. powerful that regardless of the discomfort that people may have, the benefit that you can mm -hmm. provide is absolutely worth it. And, you know, I always think, I mean, I, I, I'm in leadership, so I always think like if you're uncomfortable, that means something good is happening. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to be uncomfortable <laughs> okay. times. We're, we're learning, we're growing. Um, that's okay. so I think yes. that that is, is, you know, it's absolutely worth it. Good point. Okay. Jeff, would you like to touch on this question as well? Yeah, I, I think Lodi's framed it perfectly and I and I and I think that um, it's time for our discipline to be uncomfortable and okay. I, I think with all the anxieties about um, whether what we do could be supplanted by technology or exported to other places where it can be done at less expense um, th that should be kind of the least of what we do and, and I think finding ways to add unique value that are meaningful to our practice homes is kind of on us. And, and one of the ways to do that is to think differently about what our relationships to patients are. And that has really come through um, in the work we're doing with our Patient and Families Advisory Council, which so far as I know is, is maybe the only one that's actually sitting in a department of pathology. Um, that council includes uh, patient and family advisors who are vetted by the institution, but they're basically patients who raise their hand and said, I want to help. And um, 
understanding pathology through their eyes once they knew who we were, right? Mm -hmm. So our, our first meeting was, well, we're here, but we don't know why and we don't know who you are. And uh, as we kind of worked through those things, there was almost a little bit of anger that kind of came through as, you know, where have you been? Um, uh -huh. Because I could have I could have used you. I could have needed you. And uh, pathologists, I think the most common response I get when I talk about these things to a national audience is I'm asked who's going to pay for it. And what <laughs> about the fact I don't want to do it? Yeah. And, um, you know, my response is who's going to pay for it is an incredibly unimaginative place to start. I mean, it's an important question, but it's not the first question to answer. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, not wanting to do it um, doesn't mean much to me because I, I think um, it's kind of a condition of participation. And, and the opportunity is to do things that absolutely no one else can do. And I think in these things, we have to be leaders because nobody else understands that there are things that no one else can do. I, I, I think about a time when one of our really experienced, wonderful oncologists um, apologetically sent me a note and said, you know, this patient wants to talk to you and I've explained to her she doesn't need to and I've explained what tumor grade means, but she's insistent and, and will try to prevent it. And, you know, I said, don't prevent it. I'm, I'm happy to talk to her. And then his nurse practitioner contacted me and said, you know, we're not making a lot of proce progress. She's really insistent. And I said, well, here's my phone number. You know, mm -hmm. I'm happy mm -hmm. to talk to her. Right. And, and when this patient called me, it was, it was an amazing experience uh, because she said, you know, first of all, I want you to know uh, um, that, that my doctor and his nurse practitioner don't really understand why I want to talk to you. And secondly, I'm not stupid. I have a master's degree. I'm actually in healthcare and I work in the field of oncology. So I get it. She said, but I also imagine that when a pathologist looks at a slide, there must be something inside you that thinks something like, oh my God, I'm glad this is not me, or I'm glad it's not my sister, or I'm glad it's not my wife. And there must be other times you think, well, if you had to have this disease, this would be the right flavor. Um, what a smart thing to say. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. And I said, yeah, absolutely that happens. Mm -hmm. And she said, so which one am I? And, <laughs> Did and you, it, Do you want I, to tell me what you said? <laughs> I had her slides by my scope because I didn't know mm -hmm. what she was going to ask me. And I said, wow, um, I, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> yeah. I said, but honestly, I have your slides right here. And, and to the best of my ability, recognizing that I'm now biased by knowing you, um, I'll look at him and I'll share with you what kind of my emotional response is. And, and I did. And I told her what my response was. And uh -huh. she said, thank you. That's all I wanted to know. And nobody else could tell me. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really moving. That's you know, great. you tell stories like that and people say, well, not everybody wants that. And the answer is, of course, not everybody wants yeah. that. But what about yeah. those that do? do? Yeah. You know, we talk about personalized medicine in the context of molecular testing, but that's real personalized medicine. And, and suddenly those patients tell their friends and, and you start to recruit patients to your medical center and you tell those stories and suddenly the decision makers who allocate resources start to see pathology differently. And that's the point. Yes. And I should connect you with a friend who I've been interviewing different GYN pathologists. That's my um, actual specialty. 
Um, and she is in private practice and she does this all the time. This thing you're talking about, she has a good relationship with her oncologists. She'll call them and say, do you mind if I go talk to your patient? She'll go up to the floor and tell them their diagnosis. Sometimes she has patients come in her office. She looks at slides with them. She's shown people their gross specimen before. And I think in, in her, it's an effort to expand patient and physician knowledge of what pathologists do, because I think we complain that we're in a black box, that people don't understand us. But I think what you're kind of conveying to me is that that's partially our fault, right? For not getting out in front of things and saying, here we are, and this is what we do. And this is how vital we are. So that's, um, that's really moving. That's really great. I like well, that. And that's that exactly that's what I was going to say. I think it's going to, it's yeah. going to elevate the profession, both in terms of recruiting yeah. new people into the field, but also getting the recognition that pathology mm -hmm. and laboratory medicine deserves. I mean, I, I mean, I yes. will, you know, be the first to admit that, you know, a number of years ago, I did not know what pathology was. I didn't really understand it, you know? And I think now that I understand the, the crucial aspect of it, it's unbelievable that I didn't know. I find myself an, you know, a, an educated person that understands things and, 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 and explores further into into areas when possible and I didn't really understand pathology and laboratory medicine's role and that to me is you know clearly part also on my behalf but what an amazing world it would be if people really understand the 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 impact that it has on patient care and I think we're getting it a little bit now with the pandemic I mean I think you know, just hearing everybody's talking about testing and everybody's talking about, you mm -hmm. know, supplies that are needed. And, and so I think that that forefront now is there, uh, but how can we ensure that it elevates it? Because the more people understand pathology and laboratory medicine's role, um, the higher uh, you mm -hmm. know, patient care we're, we're going to create together. You know, I think it's a, as, a, as medicine, it's, it's a collaborative effort on all ends. Yeah. Yeah. And we all have to lean on each other. It's just we have to understand first. So we'll shift slightly now to talk about what's going on in our country, which we've touched on multiple times. But the way I see it, and uh, you all are free to disagree with me, is that I think that we are, as a country, shouldering not one, but three simultaneous crises. Um, a deadly pandemic that seems to spread both slowly and quickly at the same time. It's, I mean, I guess that's the nature of exponential growth. It's sort of not happening until it's happening at a rapid pace. A reckoning for centuries of racial injustice and an economic downturn that finds many unemployed and those who are employed worried about going back to work and infecting their family members, loved ones, people who are vulnerable. So in your article, you all state um, quote, and yet as forensics teams across the country collect the data, it is impossible to shake the suspicion that these costs are disproportionately borne by those with less, which I think was borne out by a recent New York Times publication where they got data from the CDC about infection rates in different minority groups and different racial groups and showed that this is indeed what is happening. Um, can you expand upon this and talk about what you are noting with respect to the subject of this article and how it relates to health disparities. Um, Jeff, we can start with you. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really important, Natalie. And, and as you say, the evidence that COVID-19 disproportionately affects communities of color is overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been very clear in our forensics experience, not just in Wayne County, but also in Washtenaw County, 
Uh, we're now looking at some preliminary data collected by Carl Schmidt uh, and his team at Wayne County, and it's it's really uh, sobering. Um, the data shows um, very clearly that the prevalence of positive PCR tests for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, whether taken from symptomatic or randomly selected decedents, mm -hmm. was much higher uh, in decedents of color compared to whites. And mm -hmm. that resonates with how the story's being told across the country. Right. Uh, and I think um, it illustrates that uh, pathology in general and our forensics experiences in particular are a relatively untapped opportunity to actually understand healthcare disparities and health outcome disparities uh, from a pathology platform. I, I think um, studying um, those sorts of disparities in a pathology department may seem foreign, but I think we have a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah. And I think in pathology, sometimes it can be tempting to say, um, I'm looking at a slide or I'm looking at a blood sample. I'm looking at results. I don't know the patient's race, age, gender, etc. But I think if we just dig a little bit deeper, like you say, we can be part of the solution. We can study these variables. So um, Lottie, did you want to comment on this as well? Um, I mean, another thing that I would say is, I mean, yeah, I think it's good that more and more data is coming out on it. And I think clearly pathology and laboratory medicine is going to be another uh, key element to that because um, so much data is, is collected through the laboratory. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's just another disheartening factor of this entire pandemic. Like you said, there are just three things that we're currently fighting. Um, and, you know, there's, there's clear overlap between, between at least two of them. Um, and I think it's right. just, I mean, so yeah, it's good that, that we now have this proof. Uh, I don't think it's, it's a surprise to anyone. I mean, I don't think it should be on some level. I mean, I think fairly early on, they were already talking, I believe it was in the New York Times, how um, the boroughs mm -hmm. that ha had lower social economic classes uh, were affected a lot more. Um, right. And, you know, because the ones that were that people that had more money were, you know, could go to their second homes or could leave the city and were less exposed. They could maybe work from home more and, you know, all these work implications. Home, yeah. mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, it just goes to show that with things such as this pandemic, how many uh, systemic biases they, they are, exist in the world um, today. And, you know, it's again, it's really good to to have it been acknowledged, uh, but now we just need to address it to make sure that, you know, we, we create a, a lot more of an equal world for all. Right. Um, so this coronavirus has changed life in America. I don't know anyone, I'm sure you all don't either, who hasn't been affected at all, no part of their life. So from the beginning, one of my primary concerns has been for the health of healthcare workers who have responded and are responding to this crisis. Um, Lodi, I know that you have published on the topic of physician burnout in the area of pathology, not only physicians, but also those who um, are sort of, you know, physician adjacent and work around the pathology field. Could you talk about that work? And though your data was collected before the era of COVID-19, how do you see this crisis impacting burnout and physician well-being? 
Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, the data was collected pre-COVID, um, so the, the, those implications were not addressed. Um, but I think the pandemic has clearly impacted everyone's well-being significantly, including that of pathologists and mm-hmm. laboratory prof- professionals. Um, I think those working in, in COVID testing have seen and been part of tremendous increases um, in tests, work hours, stress, um, and therefore burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard numerous stories of, of our members working weeks and weeks on end without a single day off just to meet the need mm-hmm. uh, for tests. Um, and then, of course, mm-hmm. that, you know, you add the emotional toll of a crisis and I think it creates a potentially mm-hmm. perfect storm for an increased level of burnout um, among among mm-hmm. physicians and laboratory professionals. And then, of course, you have uncertainty because we do not know how and when this crisis will end. I don't think anybody would have anticipated it um, for us to be where we are now here in July. Right. Um and then I think on the other side, for those who were not really involved in the testing, you know, elective surgeries and other procedures are being rescheduled. So now, of course, their workload is increasing exponentially as right. well because of all the ones that were canceled or rescheduled. Um, and then all those extra precautions right. and processes, uh, making sure everybody's safe and health healthy. Um, and then, of course, I think you mentioned it earlier on, it's about, you know, the, the stress distress with thinking um, about your families and the stress that it places on your family if you're going into a healthcare setting or any work setting at this point. So I think all in all, uh, COVID, we will see that COVID is going to impact burnout, uh, the burnout of physician um, and medical professionals significantly. You know, I think there's no way to deny it. And I think especially in, in those areas, we're just really going to see it where they were prone to do it um, already. I was just talking to someone last week about how, um, I mean, again, I'm European, so, you know, things are very different. And I think um, they said that residents in Europe typically have, you know, work 50 hours a week. <laughs> and I was like, 50 hours, that is almost unheard of. That's like a normal work week, you know, for, for residents. Yeah. Um, I don't think any resident here has ever worked 50 hours a week, you know, so I think that alone, and this is, again, this is normal circumstances. This is not during the pandemic. So I think if you look at that, like the amount of hours that people are, were already working and then now adding all of this stress on there as well, I think is incredibly challenging. Um, I do think that one, one of the things that really helps prevent overcome, uh, help overcome and manage burnout is increasing your leadership skills because the more that you are um, one aware of your own emotions, of course, are you're aware of burnout uh, symptoms um, in yourself, but also in others. And the more you can lead your team, um, you know, you communicate effectively, you, you know, what people uh, personal needs and, 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 and wants are, I think the, the easier it is to prevent burnout altogether, which is of course the goal because burnout, it's not like stress. It's not, it's not over in a few days of, you know, with a few days of self-care, it's going to take weeks or months to recover from. So whatever we can do right. to prevent it, I think is the crucial. Prevent it. Yeah. That's the key, which is why, you yeah. know, I mean, the ACP leadership Institute, we created a, a burnout course that we're providing free to all our members just to help them in this time, because, you know, again, anything we can do to support because it's just, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. It is a lot. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just to add to the slurry of things that you said cause stress, the other thing I'm noticing, not just, um, you know, in my, in my local area, but friends around the country is that as elective surgeries decrease, some of the profits have decreased. And so mm-hmm. I have friends who have been, you know, um, furloughed. I have friends who have been sort of forced to take unpaid vacation, which I suppose is about the same thing, or just their salaries are cut. Um, Dr. Yeah. Myers, would you like to, or I'm sorry, Jeff, would you like to speak to this, um, any of this area before we move on to the next topic? I don't know that I have anything to add that hasn't already been said better than I could say it. I, mm-hmm. I agree that um, the pandemic has had a pretty profound impact on a lot of providers, and that certainly extends to pathology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of my um, concerns in my various leadership roles is that I have not felt very connected to many of our faculty with our um, remote work um, solutions mm-hmm. that applied for kind of the worst of things. And so it's hard for me to tell how they're doing. Mm. Um, I think uh, as the number of cases began to go down and Michigan began to believe that that maybe we had made progress on this monster, um, as Loti referenced, th- then came um, economic recovery plans, which included six day a week operating rooms, expanded 12 hour block scheduling. And, right. and so it didn't get easier for the faculty. It kind of got harder. And right. uh, as you referenced, there was the stress of reductions in force. Um, so I haven't felt that um, we're like in a lot better place now. Right. <laughs> right. It's just a different place. And the right. sources of stress, and as, as Loti said, burnout's a, a lot more complicated than, than just overburden and stress. But yeah. um, but I, I think it's just a really hard time. And we have to pay attention to uh, to the folks who are most responsible for our success if we're going to not only survive this, but emerge um, better for it. Yes, and and intact, hopefully. Before COVID-19, we we spoke about this briefly before, you both published and spoke about um, pathologists increasing interactions with patients and this concept of patient-centered care, especially in the setting of increased pathology reports, um, which Lutiano, you commented on via digital means. But now that medicine has transitioned and it's changing and adapting in the time of COVID-19 to more remote methods for patient-physician interactions, how do you see the role of what you all have discussed? For example, the committee that you um, were talking about, Jeff, how do you see that adapting and changing for the area of COVID-19? And Jeff, this time we can start with you. I think that's a great question. I I um, reflect on the experience we've had with our Patient Families Advisory Council, PFAC uh-huh. for short, if you like, okay. which we launched in July 2016. Um, as I uh-huh. mentioned, it includes uh, patient family advisors. We currently have five of them. And the truth is, we spent the first year struggling to understand the difference between doing things to and for patients and mm-hmm. instead learning to do things with them. Because mm-hmm. I think the opportunity here is bigger than just speaking to patients. Um, mm-hmm. It's really about listening to patients. I mean, really listening. And that's the important difference. And I think that allows us to understand what their needs are in a way that can set aside some of our assumptions about what they in fact value and how we can 
kind of shift that value proposition in a way that's meaningful to the overall patient experience. So I think at a minimum, laboratory medicine and pathology is pretty well positioned to substantially influence not only how patients and their families experience care, but also how their providers and we ourselves experience the care that we offer from a place of greater clarity and purpose. So I think now is the time and it's always been the time. And I think never has it been more important uh, that we understand the needs of, of patients and their families not filtered through their providers, but through building different sorts of relationships directly with them in partnership with their providers. And that's what we're doing. And 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 I continue to be excited about it. And I think there's never been a more important time to remain committed to that work. Mm-hmm. Lodi, would you like to touch on this aside from what you've already mentioned? I think Jeff put it beautifully, doing it with patients. Um, I think that mm-hmm. is a perfect summary. I think, you know, looking at for instance, my own personal healthcare journey, the the doctors that I appreciated the most and I think that I collaborated with the most were the ones that I felt were do, we were in this together. We were working together on my care. Um, and I think so. I think that that is a beautiful way of putting it. And I think absolutely this is this is indeed the right time. It has always been the right time. So let's make it happen. Jeff, I would like, I'd be remiss if we completed our show without asking you to comment on your other area of expertise, which is thoracic pathology. I've been following the literature about findings in the lung in COVID-19 patients. Where do you think we stand in our understanding of COVID-19 from a pathology standpoint? A great question. And it's not unrelated to the context of this conversation in that we've leveraged the experience in both our University Hospital Autopsy Service and our forensic services, both here and in Detroit, to publish a couple of papers on the lung pathology in both hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients who uh, die of or at least with COVID-19. And and we're actually actively working on several other manuscripts. And and like many, um, we've concluded that the pathology is fundamentally diffuse alveolar damage, Mm -hmm. or DAD, which uh, is the anticipated finding in patients with the acute respiratory distress syndrome. And in fact, that's been the main change with virtually all respiratory viruses, including influenza and the coronaviruses responsible for SARS and MERS before this one. What what remains unclear in the literature is the extent to which there is anything novel about the findings in COVID-19. And the area of focus has mostly been on the prevalence of small and large vessel changes, including the frequency of macroscopic thrombi or thromboemboli. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge is that most of those observations have been made using retrospective case reports or case series, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to approach it a little differently um, by blindly reviewing slides um, from both hospitalized and non-hospitalized COVID, as well as non-COVID patients whose death predated the pandemic. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our goal was really to understand, is this different? Is it really different? And uh, our numbers were small uh, in terms of the, the kind of cohort study design uh, and really too small to do this in a statistically meaningful way, but at least as preliminary data, which I must say resonates with my anecdotal experience, and I've now seen a fair number of cases, um, it looks like any other patient with DAD of any other cause. And mm-hmm. I, And I don't know the extent to which um, 
it really speaks to a unique or novel pathogenesis when it comes to the lung injury in these patients. Right. So that's that's my current understanding, right. which which likely differs from some others. Yeah, and I've heard the the debate over the the effect of sort of emboli and clotting, um, and also you know sort of when people lump it all together, the syndrome in children, which has at least um, affected some proportion of infected children. Um, I think maybe we're just looking at different sort of disease processes, but it, it is interesting as a question. And I think we'll just understand more and more as folks like you keep putting out these papers. So appreciate that. Um, now we're going to try to move on to other topics and end on a somewhat lighter note. Um, Lodi, I noted that in your Twitter profile, you say you say you're working on something called the hashtag Mulder method. <laughs> are we allowed to know what this means or are you planning a big reveal? <laughs> Um, so the Boulder method, it's a catchy title. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, so it really came through my, uh, dissertation research. Um, so what I, what I uh-huh. researched was the cultural applicability of leadership training in the field of pathology and laboratory medicine. Uh, so a very light topic, clearly. Um, but what specifically <laughs> what I did was I looked at, how national culture, organizational culture, and leadership culture influence or potentially influence uh, the applicability of leadership training. Um, and I compared uh-huh. uh, to, I had two laboratories participating in the US, um, in Tanzania, and then in the United Arab Emirates. And then one of the things that I found was that there is actually a very strong professional culture of pathology and laboratory medicine that that uh-huh. trumps all the other types of culture, which, um, to be honest, uh-huh. is very surprising. And um, so that's really where where the Mulder method sort of came from. Um, as I shared earlier, I've 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 um, I mean I grew up in in the Netherlands, but then I've also lived and worked um, in so many other places. So so that cross cultural communication and understanding um, has always been a very big part of my professional career and personal interest. Um, so the Mulder method is really looking at how, how cultures and how different types of cultures, and I'm not necessarily talking about different types of cultures in terms of countries, uh, but really in terms of professions, um, how, they, um, mm-hmm. how they influence um, you know, the, the applicability of education. And, and if they do, mm-hmm. in what way? Um, so that's kind of where the, that's where the Mulder method is, uh, was created. Oh, interesting. You've got definitely a, a case of wanderlust too. It sounds like you've been everywhere. Um, I'm sure it's hard for you not to be able to travel right now. For sure. <laughs> it um, is. Though yeah. mostly to not see my family, yeah. but you know, like other than that, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I could be yeah. on the road every day if I, if I chose. Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> if I could. Yeah. It's good that there are people like who enjoy that. That's great. Um, and Jeff, I note um, when I was researching you online that you play in a band and that your transformative moment for forming this band, or at least part of it, was at a Jeff Beck concert. After we record, you, or you can just let me know your thoughts on my theme music, which was recorded by a friend of mine with my love of power pop in mind. So I have a two-part question for you. Is your band still playing on Zoom? And who is your favorite guitarist of all time? Uh, great questions. Um, yeah. 
So the band's name is Lost in Processing. So you see it has a pathology theme. Um, <laughs> I meant to bring that up. That's so great. I mean, people like my podcast name, but yours is so much better. <laughs> and yeah. and it includes um, three pathologists from our department, my colleagues, Joel Greenson and Yule Belize. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, we have not practiced since January for a variety okay. of reasons. Um, right. Not the least of which a couple of our members... Um, Really, COVID became another full-time job, which kind of limited bandwidth for doing music. But no we're pun planning. Intended. On, sorry. Bandwidth, no pun intended. Sorry. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, we're planning on an incremental ramp up next month, beginning with mm-hmm. our instrumentalists who can be socially distanced in a practice venue that we call the Ranch. It's in rural Washtenaw County. Uh, we're unlikely to add back all three of our vocalists, given the risks of singing, until this right. COVID cloud is dissipated, which is unlikely to be earlier than than late in the fall at best, I suspect. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know when we're going to be back to, to playing music, but um, it's going to be a while, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they do it, but I've been watching uh, things online like the Colbert Show yeah, has been yeah. having bands play. Yes. At, they must have sophisticated recording because they can all hear one another, right? Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Not, yeah, it's awesome. I love those things. Um, yeah, and, and of course, Yul Belize is head of our IT unit. And uh, I guess when it comes to informatics, is one of the smartest human beings I know. He's probably one of the smartest human beings I know in any context. And mm-hmm. and he, of course, said, you know, we could do that. And, and my response was, I, I'm sure we can, uh, but I suspect we won't. So that's kind of where we're at. Favorite guitar player, I have a lot of them, but, but it forced to put one name at the top for me, it would be Eric Clapton. Oh, yeah. I know. You know, I, I had to refresh my memory of Jeff Beck, which might hurt your feelings. I, I had a lot of friends who liked the birds growing up, so I knew yeah. that much about him. But he is often compared to Eric Clapton. So it's interesting that yeah. you're yeah. similar generation and, and an mm-hmm. amazing guitar player without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, that's a happy. Yeah. Oh, Lodi, do you have a favorite guitar player, too? No, but I, I, I mean, Eric Clapton just... clearly is fantastic, but um, I have def- I've danced to Lost in Processing many times. They are absolutely guaranteed to bring you to the dance floor at any party. Um, great. So you have a fan. That's great. <laughs> yeah. One. Okay. Yeah, we got yeah, one. Exactly. <laughs> well, you can, to minimize burnout and help us all cope, you can put your um, band practices online and it would just exactly. come full circle. So, um, I will be there. Exactly. So I really appreciate Oh, <laughs> so I really appreciate both of you taking the time to come on and talk to me. I think this is an important topic. I think we ended up kind of getting places that I didn't think we would, and it's all terrific. I really help, I appreciate you helping me learn. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you both coming on, and we'll talk soon. Have a good day. Yeah, you Thanks. too. You too.